Roger for leading us in prayer that way. And it's, it is good to see more and more things about our gathering here at Stony Brook seem like, like normal. Though I have to admit, uh, I was only in normal for about six months as pastor, so I've had, it feels new to me, <laughs> normal to the rest of you. And we are looking forward to that, that time on Tuesday and then next week when we gather on Sunday in which normal can include uh, no masks, if that's what you would like. There will be no longer any mask requirements. And so I know many of you are excited about uh, choosing not to wear a mask and having that freedom, and, and please do so and enjoy that. But I also know that there will be a handful of you who would love to continue to wear a mask, and I just want to let you know, from me to you, uh, you are more than welcome to do that, to do what makes you uh, comfortable to be here. And I just want to encourage all of us, no matter if you are someone who decides to take the mask off or keep it on, to make sure that you treat everyone equitably that way, because now we're in a, a new chapter here where we can make some of our own choices that way, and they can and should be different. And that should not be something that puts anybody on edge when they come here to Stony Brook next week. So come as you are, as always, and I'll be happy to see you um, as always as well. So Karen and Silas, my wife and my youngest child, they are uh, in Alberta. I dropped them off on Thursday. They're staying with her parents, my in-laws, for about a week. And uh, they're having a great time out there. So I have been dadding it up with the older two boys and things got a little bit more interesting when Friday was a snow day, and so my day looked very different. So if that, the sermon seems a little hastily prepared, now you know why. Um, but we've had, been having a great time, me and my older two boys, and uh, it have been good to, uh, to see Karen have a good time with her parents. It reminded me of a time six years ago uh, when our family was looking very different. Uh, my wife and I, we had a sabbatical, and we went to live with her parents while I took full-time studies at Ambrose Seminary. And at that time, we had Eli, who was three, and Malachi, who turned one while we were there. And, uh, and we enjoyed our time out there. And we took another uh, trip. We took a holiday within our sabbatical, and we went down to Montana to visit a close friend of Karen's and her family. They were working with YWAM down there on Lakeside, Montana, and it was a beautiful Beautiful place to visit. We, got, we enjoyed the drive, we went through the Crow's Nest Pass and through the mountains and then went to Montana and it was absolutely gorgeous and picturesque and just really enjoyed our time there. But one thing that really stood out for Karen and I in our experience in Montana was actually with her friends and how they were parenting their kids. We had kids of similar ages. And it seemed that as kids do and they act up and they act out and they do things that they shouldn't and they need to be corrected or disciplined, they just had such a knack of, of not just talking about the rules, but the heart behind the rules, what the, what the heart that God really wants to see would be. We were so impressed by that. They also had this uncanny ability to find a consequence that, that actually matched the action that they did. Oh, if you did this, then it was a natural consequence, as opposed to Karen and I, who were just like, all right, no sugar or no screen time. That was, seems like the only thing that was in our, it still seems like the only thing sometimes that we have available to us. And we came away duly impressed with how they discipline their children. We took notes and we tried to implement some of what we saw working so well for them. Now, much like parenting, church discipline is all over the map. It's all over the map. Depending what family you come from, discipline will feel a certain way or will be done a certain way. Depending what church family you've been a part of in the past, even now in the present, you also have a different experience of church discipline. So there is a lot of church families out there that they don't they don't like this idea at all. It's uncomfortable. So do we really need to discipline? You know, it's all just grace. And so we're not going to do any of it. We don't really talk about those things. We're not going to face those things. And on the other end of the spectrum, you will see some church families that love the idea of discipline. They seem to enjoy it or seek after some of that confrontation and making sure everybody's towing the line. 
And then, of course, you'll have churches everywhere in between. And then, to be fully honest, I don't really know where we are as Stony Brook Fellowship because that's not something we've had to go through as of yet. But as we work towards spiritual renewal, if we want to grow and mature in our faith, then discipline is going to play an important part of that process. Just as uh, we need to continue, as Karen and I as parents, we need to discipline our children and correct them, we do so for their benefit so that they can grow into maturity. And, and if truly we do want to seek after spiritual renewal, if we want this maturity, then spiritual discipline or church discipline is also going to play a part and a role. We should not shy away from it. But of course, you can probably chalk this up to another passage that if I was putting together a series, I'd probably avoid. Oh, we don't really need to deal with this here. I mean, come on, how often does this stuff happen? But these are words of Christ, the teaching of Christ that is, is meant for our benefit and our renewal and maturity in him. And so I'm going to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, the passage you'll see listed on the screen is, is verses 1 to 20, uh, which talks a lot about how the family or the people of Jesus should treat one another. We're going to focus specifically on that idea of church discipline in verses 15 to 20. And I'll read those verses for you and you can follow along in your own Bible. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Please pray with me. Jesus, we cling to that last promise you gave us that we just read, that we are gathered here in your name, and we know that you are here among us. God, I pray that that would strike us as so significant, not to be taken for granted, uh, that, that you, our Savior and our Lord and our God, are right here, holding us together, leading us into the words of truth, and hopefully uh, just convicting us where we need to be convicted and encouraging us where we need to be encouraged. We ask you uh, to do this as you have promised to do. Amen. So we talked about these ideas of church discipline. I would say that and in Matthew in particular, it says if someone sins against you. So this is, this is part of what is going on. But, but in a parallel passage in Luke, it just says if somebody sins. And we're going to go to a passage in Galatians that says if you see someone in sin. So I really want to broaden this idea. It's not limited to someone sinning against you personally. That is part of it, but not limited to the scope of what church discipline can entail. It could also be when we see somebody that is stuck and trapped in sin and needs to be freed from it. But in order for us to carry out this biblically, in order for this to be this crucial part of our spiritual renewal, we need to know the prerequisites and the, pro uh, the process and the promise of church discipline. And so these three things are what we're going to look at a little bit further. So before we jump into the process, and I love how Jesus lays this out for us step by step, but before we get there, I'm going to give us four prerequisites, things that have to be true in our heart, in our life, before we do anything according to what Jesus has instructed us to do here in Matthew 18. 
The first prerequisite for church discipline is that you need to look in the mirror. You need to look in the mirror. And this is not just my prerequisite, though I do agree that it's a pretty good one. This is exactly what Jesus has taught earlier in Matthew, chapter 7, verses 3 and 5. In the context of not judging other people, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Harsh words. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what is Jesus teaching? He is not saying that we can't, want, we can't help remove a speck. He's not saying we should be disinterested or not do anything with helping somebody else. He says, before you do that, first, as a prerequisite, look in the mirror. What do you see about yourself? Examine your heart. Examine your soul. Examine your mind. Get right with God before you help someone else do the same thing. So before we do anything with somebody else, we need to look in the mirror, make sure that we are humbly asking for God to reveal what we need to work on, asking for that repentance, getting right with God, and then we, then we are going to be able to and effective at helping somebody else do the same thing. So first, we look in the mirror. Second, I want you to think and pray before you speak. Jesus used this analogy of a log, which is a big object, or a speck, which is a small object. Here's the thing. We have this process of, of what we need to do to work through in order to get right with someone who has wronged us. But the question is, do we need to bring up every last issue? Whether someone has wronged you personally or whether you're just trying to help a brother or sister Christ out in an area of your life that you feel they need encouragement or conviction, the question is the same. Is this issue worth bringing up? Is it worth bringing up? Because this is not an invitation to air all our dirty laundry against somebody else or to try to nitpick the ways in which they are imperfect. Because guess what? They're not perfect, and neither are you. And neither is the person on your left or your right. And neither is your pastor who's preaching this sermon. So we need to, to first ask ourselves, is this something worth bringing up? Because not everything will be that significant. Now, especially when somebody has wronged you, you need to, to really wrestle with this. Someone has, has done something against you. Is this something in which you can forgive and forget and, and, and truly let go of and move on from? Because if you can continue in right relationship with that person, if it's been a small thing, then perhaps you don't need to have this very uncomfortable conversation. But if that relationship between you and the other has now been broken and cannot be mended without having that uncomfortable conversation, now it is an issue worth pursuing. And this is something that you'll need to discern and you can ask others for guidance. And you can talk to your pastor. You can pray about it. But think and pray before you speak. This isn't going to be the wild west of us all pointing each other's faults out. That's not the point. This is not to air out all our little grievances, but it is to be willing to have hard conversations. So yes, make sure that you look in the mirror. Make sure you think before you speak. And then understand, prerequisite number three, understand that this is a two-way street. So church, this might be the most important prerequisite. I think they're all important. Never, ever, ever go and hold someone else accountable if you are not willing to also be held to account. Everything that you do in approaching someone when you think that they have wronged you or you believe that they're caught in sin, you need to then be willing for someone to do the same. And when the shoe is on the other foot, would you appreciate someone doing what you are wanting to do for them? 
You need to be open to be held accountable. In fact, if we use that word accountability, the very definition of it is to be mutual, that you hold someone to account as they hold you to account because you as as a Christian and they as a Christian have agreed to live the same way. You have agreed to pursue Christ together and then you have agreed to be open to someone pointing out those ways in which your pursuit of Christ could be strengthened. This is part of what it means to be a true spiritual family. We need to be humble enough to allow someone to point out our sin. And it's going to be awkward and it's going to be difficult. But if that's not true, then we should not be the ones working through this process that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18. And the last prerequisite that I would say needs to be in place is we need to know what our end game is. What's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish by having these difficult conversations? The goal is clear in the teaching of Christ and elsewhere in scripture. The goal is restoration. We are doing this to restore the other person. That is critical. Um, this, there's a, a passage in Galatians I said we get to. I want to jump there now. Galatians 6, 1 to 2. And I, I truly believe that this is Paul remembering and reminding the early church of this teaching of Christ. And he's, he's in agreement with it when he says to the church in Galatia, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. One of my pet peeves is uh, how we often misquote Galatians 6 two. We say, oh, we want to bear one another's burdens, like it means to bear the hard and difficult times of life, which is true, we can do that. But what Paul is specifically talking about is bearing the weight of temptation and sin. And being willing to help each other out because sometimes we will fall under that weight and we need somebody there to lift us up. But the goal is not to belittle the person who's fallen down. The goal isn't to tell the person on the ground how wrong they are. The goal is to restore them. So this isn't about championing the truth. This isn't about making sure that they know that we are right and they are wrong. This isn't to convict them of the, of the shame that they already feel. This is to connect them back to God, because that's the whole point of restoring. The first thing that we do through any type of spiritual discipline is to restore the relationship that sin broke, and that relationship is between somebody else and God. And sin does this. It, it, it puts an obstacle where, where Christ wants to remove all these obstacles. And so we want to bring them back into right relationship with God. We want to restore this person to the Lord and Savior who loves them enough to die on a cross for their sins in the first place. We want to restore them to right relationship with God. And second, we want to restore somebody else back to right relationship with the community of God. And this is when somebody has wronged you and you need to go through this, the goal is now to be back in right relationship with them. And Jesus knows this, and that's why he says when you go and talk to someone, if they listen to you and repent and you forgive them, you have gained a brother or you have gained a sister. They are now back into right relationship with you. This community is being restored. So what are our prerequisites? What are these things that need to happen? Well, we need to make sure that we look in the mirror. We think before we speak. We understand it's a two-way street. And the goal is always restoration. We restore in a spirit of gentleness. Whenever we call somebody, even on hard things, and have that tough conversation, it's for their benefit. Now, if you are a parent or 
uh, have had little children and you've had to discipline in the past, you know that discipline comes from the desire to love your kids. It is for their benefit. But they don't always understand that in the moment. Um, I had a, a situation happen to me just last week that reminded me of this. Um, back when Eli was, was two, he was sitting at the dinner table, and we have one of these high chairs that sits on top of our dining room chair, and, uh, and so then and, and we use that. And, and, and at his, his head, the, the back of the chair came right up here to the back of his head. And then one day he, he pushed himself away from the table, and his chair fell backwards, and he dashed open the back of his head. And then we ran to emergency and proceeded to quickly wait for three and a half hours looking at the gash on the back of his head before they glued it shut. And if you want, you can ask Eli after the service to show you the very significant scar that's still on the back of his head for that. So what did we do? Well, we didn't get rid of that chair. Of course, we already bought it. We're not going to get a new high chair. So we're still using the same setup today. And Silas is three, around the same age. And just the other day, he started to push himself away from the table. And I see the chair teetering. And I yell, no! And he looks at me. He is shocked. He has no idea. Like, what, what did I do? I barely did anything. Well, why was I reacting so strongly? Because I don't want him to have that same hurt, that same trauma that his brother had to go through. So I was very strong in my discipline, not because I was mad at him, not because I wanted him to feel bad, but because I wanted to take care of him. And so this is part of the spirit of restoration that we need to have in any church discipline, spiritual discipline that we are a part of. So there we go. And I would say this, if we, before we get into the process, before you ever engage in this, you need to make sure that all of those things, those four prerequisites are checked off. If any of them are missing, you are not ready to proceed any further. But once you are in the right place in your own heart and mind, we can go through this process of discipline that Jesus gave us. And the first thing he says is, I want you to go and talk to the person that has wronged you one-on-one. I want you to have a personal conversation. And really, <laughs> the most important word, I think, in all of this is the very first one. He says, go. Go and speak to somebody. So this is truly important. Spiritual unity does not come from turning a blind eye to unrepentant sin at work. It is way easier to ignore all of these things. And yes, we are living in that tension between what is something that we need to bring up, what can we let go, and what is something that we really need to pursue. And there are so many of you here this morning, and you are do not like confrontation. How many of you do not like confrontation? Put your hand up. Yeah, and you're going to just wriggle in your chair. You're going to be super uncomfortable. Uh, I don't care if you don't like it. It's not whether you like it or not. If you have been wronged, if your relationship is broken, if someone's relationship with God needs to be restored, the first step is to go, is to be willing, to be courageous enough to have a very hard, uncomfortable conversation with someone. And if we just continue to ignore it and continue to not want to confront, then it's going to affect our unity. It's going to lead to this lack of restoration that we so desperately need. We need to be willing. But but we also need to be willing to go directly to someone, which means we don't talk about them behind their back. We don't just share with everybody else how they've wronged us until we have gone and talked to them about it. Now, here's a friendly reminder. If you've taken out membership here at Stony Brook Fellowship, then part of your membership covenant is a commitment to avoid gossip. And I think that's a crucial part of this process. We don't just go and talk to them after we've talked to 18 other people. We go and talk to that person in person one-on-one, and we safeguard and respect them and safeguard that situation by not sharing it around the church beforehand. 
So do not talk about someone behind their back. Be willing to go and talk to them in person. And when you go, then you are invited by Jesus to personally correct this um, uh, the sin that has been done to you, or you see uh, someone um, kind of entrenched in sin. And 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 our English, or my ESV uh, uh, translation here said, "Go and tell somebody their fault." And that's that's almost a, a, a bit light. So really, the weight of that word is to correct, or to reprove, or to convict somebody of the sin that's happened in their life that's broken down your relationship with this person. Now, ultimately, conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I think we need to pray to that end. We're not going into these situations on our own. We want to go with God, with his blessing, in obedience to his teaching, and with the Holy Spirit, asking that the Spirit of God would be at work so that when you do have this hard and uncomfortable conversation, the person you have this conversation with will will hear you and will be moved by the Spirit, and then you will have gained a brother or sister. And this can be all be done and over with in a blink of an eye. Uh, but that doesn't always happen that way, which is really too bad, and which is why Jesus brings us to the second step. If somebody does not listen to you when you've gone and talked to them in person, then I want you to bring two or three witnesses. And Jesus is using this language of two or three witnesses, not Uh, by accident. In fact, it is a legal reference back to the law given by God to Moses and then to the people. And when we read the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 19.15, we see where this law comes into play. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Jesus is very intentionally going back to this law and saying that if you can't sort this out one-on-one, then we want to make sure this is done with justice in mind, that we want everything to be done to the letter of the law. And I want you to bring two or three witnesses. What this does is it avoids one person's word against another person's word. We have a hard time discerning the truth when he says one thing and she says another. And so witnesses are able to bear witness to the truth of the situation and allow that situation to uh, move forward. It also promotes justice where someone cannot slander against another person if this continues to be a contentious issue. So these witnesses are there to promote justice and to do everything according to the letter of the law. That is the goal. But these added witnesses will also bring some weight to the, to the discussion. Right? It, is, it is easy to maybe disregard what one person says you should not be doing or should be doing. It is a little more difficult when two or three other people are there saying, hey, we agree this should not be the case in your life or you should be pursuing this other option. It moves the discussion forward. But if you are in this process and you need to bring other people with you into the situation, I would say that you need to bring the right people with you. And who are the right people? Who are the right witnesses? Well, they are also people who have gone through each one of those four prerequisites and have also been able to look in the mirror and to understand as the two-way streets, to think before they speak, and who know that the goal is restoration. Don't bring in anybody that is not of like mind and of like heart in the matter. But when you bring those right witnesses in, it can truly move the conversation forward. Uh, I am really pleased to have been in ministry now for almost 13 years and to have not a whole lot of experience in the area of church discipline. I haven't been part of perfect churches, but these churches have been healthy. And this hasn't always come up, which I think is the way it ought to be. 
But I have had some experience or seen things happen. In one situation, in my former church, there was this uh, uh, couple, and they were actually a fairly committed couple in our church, and we found out at the 11th hour that, that the husband was, was leaving his wife. He was going to leave, leave her uh, for another woman. And this was very shocking for our community because we couldn't see it coming. From the outside looking in, everything looked pretty good. But I mean, we're decent at that at church, right? We can make things look pretty good from the outside. And all of a sudden you realize that things haven't been very healthy there. And he's gone. He's about to leave. He's packing his stuff up. And now the men from his small group came and they went to his house. There's three or four of them, according to this process. And they called him on it. They said, hey, you should not do this. It's not too late. You can give up on this plan. You can turn back now. We, we, we are all of like mind. We have sought the Lord and truly believe that this is not what he wants for you in this moment. Don't do it. Now, if this is a perfect analogy, if I just made this up to prove my point, he would have listened to them. He did not. And that breaks my heart to this day. But the way that they did it, and according to the teaching of Jesus, led to his repentance a few years later. And he returned to the church for a time. A door that was open and only open, I believe, because of that gentle and firm spirit of those other men who were willing to have that hard conversation. But they did so, and he knew that their goal was to restore him, to protect him, and not to harm him. And some form of restoration happened within the church after he left, even though his marriage at that point was effectively over. So we need to be willing to bring these witnesses if things need to move forward. And then the, that third step is now, if, if someone is still not listening, if they are still not being convicted of the sin after witnesses are involved, we can now include the church. Include the church. The circle broadens to the entire community because unrepentant sin affects the entire community. Does this seem like Again, we don't want to air everybody's dirty laundry in front of a whole group of people, but the reason this is included is because Jesus knows that his people, if there is unrepentant sin at work with his people, is going to affect the entire group of his people. Now, he's also speaking to a group that is much smaller. So it is easier at the time of Christ and now into the early church where we read in uh, Paul's writings, uh, where, where they gathered in homes, they were really like small group or home churches. And so to include the whole church wouldn't have seemed like that many people. I think it, it really means something altogether very different. Even here at Stony Brook, we're a relatively small church uh, by different types of standards here in Steinbeck. But this would still be a lot of people to be drawn into church discipline. And I would say that my, that might not even be the most appropriate way to go about this step in the spirit of what Christ is teaching. And so what we have done at Stony Brook is, is you have elected people onto the spiritual life and care team. And I think that they can faithfully represent you as the congregation in situations like this. That we don't need to go to a members meeting and say, oh, so-and-so is doing this and that and the other thing. We can, we can go to the spiritual life and care team and they can represent you and they can work on behalf of the church to restore that person even when it gets to this level, this last gasp of saying, is there any way that you can turn from this? Is there any way that we can restore you into our community? And so I think that that team can play that vital role and we can be in accordance with what Jesus has taught in Matthew 18. And then what happens? What happens if they don't listen to you and they won't listen to you and witnesses and they won't listen to you and, and, and the leadership of the church? What happens then? And Jesus says, if someone will still not listen, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And that's where I go, what? <laughs> I mean, Jesus has spent most of the Gospels teaching people to not treat 
Gentiles and tax collectors poorly. So is he changing his mind here? Well, not at all. Not at all. He's not telling people to treat Gentiles and tax collectors like outsiders, but he is using them as an example because they would be two groups of people who the Jewish community would treat as being on the outside looking in. And so he's saying, I'm still trying to correct that situation or that attitude, but but think back to the way that you have often treated Gentiles and tax collectors. You have removed them from your community. That's the way that you need to treat someone who is unwilling to repent of sin, even after you've talked to them and prayed for them and brought others to them and included church leadership in the process. If they still will not move in their hearts, then you can ask them or tell them to leave. And I have a hard time with this. I, I, I want everybody to come to our church. I want everyone to keep coming to our church. I don't want anybody to leave. And truly, this is a last resort. Now, let's say that if you go to a church and you hear the word excommunication more than once every couple of years, <laughs> that is not a good sign. This is, again, this is not the goal. This is the thing that we do to protect the community when the goal that we had in mind cannot be reached. The goal is to restore never to push away. But we need to put the safety and the health and the spiritual health of our community uh, ahead of this. And, and so how un- however uncomfortable this may be, asking someone to leave the spiritual family due to unrepentant sin is vital in looking after the health of the church. I can go uh, give you a passage from 1 Corinthians and I'll give you a bit of a disclaimer. If you ever read the letter to the Corinthians, Paul is mad pretty much all the time. Is that true, Earl? He is mad at the Corinthian church from the get-go. They are doing some fairly terrible things. And there's a lot of correction that needs to happen in this church. And so Paul is done trying to make nice. And he is just very blunt in his assessment of why this is so important. And so in, in, his, in this strong language, I'm going to read for you 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. And uh, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's a lot even more harsh language in there, but what Paul is saying is that little bit of leaven, that little bit of yeast will affect the entire lump of dough. And if there is this unrepentant sin that continues to fester and break relationships with each other and break relationships with God, that will have a drastic and negative effect on our spiritual community. So what do we know when we take the teaching of Christ and Paul and and look at it from a scriptural point of view? Well, we know that we need to take seriously the negative effect of unrepentant sin in the church. This is why we need to be courageous enough to have those hard conversations and we need to be willing to walk down this process given to us by Christ. And we need to be willing to, if necessary, ask somebody to leave, to safeguard what Christ is doing in our midst. We need to take seriously the negative effect of unrepentant sin. But we also need to take very seriously the grace given to us by Christ, our Passover lamb. You might be thinking there, sitting there and thinking, well, okay, we're going to take seriously, but like, I'm not perfect. I've got a lot of sin in my life. Am I, am I going to poison the well here at Stony Brook? Like, this seems like a really hard thing. Like, is this just a, a, a church for perfect people? Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our perfection. He is our forgiveness and our mercy. He makes us into a new creation. He is the reason we are a church. And the church will always be for imperfect people, but people who are willing to repent of sin and seek after Christ together. That's the call. The call isn't to be perfect. The call is to be willing to repent of those imperfections, restore yourself with God and with others, and encourage other people to do the same. And may Lord have mercy that we never have to kick somebody out, because I really don't want to do that. So we have the prerequisites that need to be true in our heart before we engage in the process of church discipline. But, but Jesus also doesn't leave us there. He gives us a few promises. The first thing that Jesus promises is he gives the church this authority to discern what is sin or what is not sin. He uses these words again that we heard just last week in Matthew 16, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose will be loosed. And if you remember to last week, we talked about how this is specific to what is permitted and what is forbidden. And that becomes even clearer in the context of what is sin, what needs to be dealt with, what needs to be repentant of. Jesus is saying, I will be with you. I give you the authority and I give you the tools to discern what is truly God-honoring and what is not, what needs to be dealt with and what can be forgiven and forgotten. This authority has been given to Peter in Matthew 16 is now extended to all of the disciples and now to us as the church. Jesus promises us this ability to continue to discern the sin and to convict people of it. But secondly, Jesus promises his presence as the community works together towards restoration. And at the end, he says again, where two or three are gathered, which again is this callback to Deuteronomy. It's another legal reference. He says, what you're doing here is official. It counts. It matters. It's reflected in the spiritual reality in heaven, just as it's carried out here on earth. All of this is legally done and it is binding and it is good. And I have said so. But of course, this is much more than just a legal situation. Jesus promises to be present. And as the music team comes up, we're going to sing a song that reflects that. And I want to drive this point home as we conclude our time together this morning. Jesus promises to be present where two or three are there. I am in the midst of them. I am among them. I am with them. I am in the middle of them. And it is true here today, and it's been true every other time that we've gathered together. It's true when we get together in our fellowship groups. It's true when we get into our, together in our discipleship troops, groups. It's true when we get together with coffee with people that we love that are also Christ followers. And when we are there, Christ is there with us. And he reiterates this in a new way in his final words to his disciples as he is given a task to, to, to plant and to grow the church. He says, go into all the world. Spread my good news. Teach people to obey. Baptize them in my name. And he says, right before he ascends, for I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. One of the things that I love about Stony Brook Fellowship is how we champion the fact that we are a spiritual family. That has everything to do with what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. We are a spiritual family, not because we work hard at unity not because we put so much effort into getting along with one another, not because we become more courageous to have difficult conversations. That's not what does it. We are a spiritual family, but not because we follow Jesus' teaching on church discipline. 
We could follow this to a T. It doesn't make us a spiritual family. We could do all the right things for all the right reasons. It's still not why. We are a spiritual family, only and always because Jesus is truly here among us, binding us together and helping us become more like him, restoring us to God, restoring us to each other, even and especially when we fall down. Let's pray. God, uh, many people didn't come here today to hear about discipline. <laughs> but it is, it is important. It's vital. It's given to us for our own renewal and, and growth and maturity in you. God, this is the way that imperfect people can stay in right relationship with you and with others. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus and the grace and mercy given in him, because we have each other to hold accountable, we can truly bear the burden of sin and temptation together and live more like you and be more and more that spiritual community that you desire us to be. So let us be willing to check our hearts, make sure that they're in the right place. Let us be willing to have hard conversations with the goal of restoration and let God please give your blessing. Let us flourish as a family because of who you are 